Hello, everyone, and welcome to HR Works, the podcast for HR professionals. We really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day to join us. I am the host of HR Works, Jim Davis, and the editor of the HR Daily Advisor. This podcast aims to put valuable tools and knowledge into the hands and ears of you, the HR professional. Those tools will arm you with the best methods and strategies for attracting, motivating, and retaining top talent. All along, HR has had another job, predicting the future. The urgency of that job grows with each passing year as various technologies rapidly advance. In a presentation that I recently attended, Ginny Romady, the CEO of IBM, stated that skills learned today are obsolete in five years. That stunning fact alone well couches the problem at hand. Technology is evolving far too quickly for employees to keep up, and HR is no exception. Today's guest specializes in what the workplace, and in particular leadership, will look like in 2025. I'm pleased to introduce Lisa Ruth, the senior partner and CEO of Cultivate Leadership, a consulting firm that is dedicated to leadership science, organizational design, and executive coaching. With over 20 years of experience, Lisa has dedicated her career to helping organizations with the mechanics of leadership, human performance, and systems of collaboration. Lisa studied applied leadership and organizational psychology at Ken Blanchard School of Business and did graduate work in authentic leadership at Naropa University. She also has a master's in social change, marrying her passion for empowering leaders, doing world-changing work. I feel like there's a missing part there. No, that's it. What are you marrying your passion your passion to? I think the passion <laughs> is marrying leadership to social change. Um, that's, you know, really that's the enabler of social change is leadership. I, I think leadership is the key to the door. All right. Well, thanks for that clarification. I think I'm going to leave that all in there. So <laughs> <laughs> um, finally, Lisa has given talks at BLR events in the past, and we're very pleased to have her today. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. What a pleasure and an honor. Absolutely. Why don't we uh, jump right in? Um, there are going to be a lot of changes to the workplace and, and to leadership over the next 10 years. Uh, for example, I see that there's going to be, uh, by some estimates, as many as 800 million jobs lost globally by 2030. That That's not that many jobs, right? It's a lot. It's a lot. It's, it's even more important to think through how automation will reshape entire industries, right? It's not just the jobs that we're losing, but it's entire industries and people who have particular skills. Like a, a large majority of some of those industries will be, uh, think of trucking, right? Think of um, cars that are autonomous. Think of um, trains and transportation and airplanes. And, and so what we end up with are people, um, there's an entire category of people who are skilled for hands-on work that we have over time, over the last 50 years, become more and more accustomed to, to outsourcing that type of work to other workers around a globalized marketplace. And so losing jobs is a problem within itself, but losing jobs for a particular category of people is also a, a problem that we have to grapple with. Right. So this thing's not going to hit equally. Um, I think maybe it would be more manageable if you said, okay, across all industries, we each lose 
whatever that is, 0.5% of our jobs. But, you know, I've, I've been following the automation of the uh, trucking industry, that you, the example that you brought up. You know, it hasn't quite happened yet, but they're on the cusp, you know, and that's a lot of education, a lot of time, and a lot of people that learn one thing, you know. Um, what's going to happen to these people? You know, I think that's a really interesting question. Um, I think we're, we are at a transition and I think that's the most important thing to recognize here there. For me, there is a difference between a change and a transition. A change is something that happens on, you know, this date at this time. So we, we turn the lights on in the new building or we go live with the new product. And I don't think that automation is going to happen that suddenly. I think it's going to happen slowly. I live uh, part of my time in the Bay Area and part of my time in Austin, Texas. And in the Bay, there's already little robots that literally drive down the street with your takeout in Berkeley. Um, So you can scan a QR code when it comes to your door. It makes its way up your elevator. It goes through your gates, pushes codes, and it delivers your food right to the door. And so it's not just truck drivers, which is, you know, a massive industry in the United States. Um, but it's, it's also people who do the, the majority of the work of, of sort of life, right? So it's our service industry. It's our customer service industry, um, our transporters. It's people who, who basically make life work will slowly have to be retrained, Um, And we'll have to make space for different types of skills in workplaces that have been traditionally withheld for people who have office skills. Mm. Now, there's an upside to that as well, right? We, We now are welcoming in people who who know how to collaborate in different ways, who get work done in a very real time sort of hands on way that isn't quite so heady as the rest of us, but I I think it's a shift. So transition to me is really important because we are straddling the old way of, of living and doing work and the new way isn't quite here yet. And so basically neither way is working. And, and that to me means as someone who is sort of a, a leadership nerd Um, You know, it's been my passion my whole life is this this concept of leadership. That to me means that the leaders of the future will look very different. uh, But it also means that the leaders for the transition need to be skilled in both the old way and the new way and are the are the people who will sort of recreate those jobs, recreate industries for people who are skilled in a particular way. Yeah, let's. uh... Let's focus on leadership in particular, because um, leadership's a critical part of HR and and obviously of the operation of any major organization. Um, maybe we could just look at it. You could sort of define the characteristics of your average leader today and what they might look like in, say, 10 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's a really important thing to think about. 10 years is an important time frame because uh, I have this picture that I have saved of myself in 1997 when I was a young manager in telecom and one of our CEOs came for this big awards gathering that we were that we would have quarterly and I was getting one of those manager awards for quarterly performance and he came in and he gave us this big motivational speech in 1997 about how in the not too distant future we were all going to 
to not have landlines, that our landlines would, and we were in telecom, right? This is what we did <laughs> was we connected landlines to people's homes and talked about how to make technology work. And he said, yeah, people will have their own personal communication device in their pocket. And we laughed at him. <laughs> and in 2007, um, even my grandmother had an iPhone, right? So, yeah. so 10 years later, we went from having 3% of information being stored electronically to 94% of information being stored electronically. And it was all because of the pace of technology, really pushing us forward. And, you know, that's evidenced by the fact that today, at the time of this recording, the iPhone is not even 12 years old. And think about how much our lives have changed because of it, right? I doubt that that executive knew when when he talked about what would happen in 10 years, that we would also check the weather on that device, or that we would also map to, you know, to uh, our locations with our GPS, or that we would use it to record podcasts with, of all things. Like, there's a massive amount of advancement that can happen in 10 years. And thinking about what leaders need to do uh, in such a rapidly changing world is we're sort of really moving from this traditional way of thinking about leading. Um, the you know I I lead organizations through strategic planning and change management um, and sort of crisis management, depending on what's going on, growth planning, and and for most of us, what we've trained our whole lives for is to plan three to five years out, right? To have short term and long term goals, to have flawless planning to, you know, to set targets and avoid failure, to have sort of rigorous analysis before we pick a path because no one wants to waste resources. Um, we check in with those things periodically and we spend a lot of time checking ourselves to the vision. Right. And I think the very technology that, that created that iPhone or smartphones in general um, this sort of agile technology. And for, for people who don't quite know what agile is, uh, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a very rudimentary technology person, so I can describe it in, in the lowest common denominator. <laughs> agile is basically getting a product to good enough and then allowing your customers to give you real-time feedback about what's working. And so this is the very reason why I don't update my phone the first two or three times it warns me, right? I don't know if you do, but nope. for me, <laughs> it, it always feels like maybe it's going to mess something up, right? Yeah. And, and there's always those little patches that come out afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, I don't know if that's true. I don't know if I'd be better if I was sort of one of those bleeding edge people. Um, but I think that the model of of technology today is to allow your customers to test your products, to not waste three to five years in R&D, and to be able to get real-time, fail-fast, sort of enlightened trial and error ways of thinking. And this is directly from what they call the Agile Manifesto. It's this, um, you've probably heard, fail-fast, right? Um, I think in Silicon Valley, they say things like, move fast and break things. Yeah, that well, that was going to be one of my questions. Is if you could tell me what failing fast is. Yeah, yeah. So I think this is also a leadership skill, right? To to make sure that we keep going back to your question about what are the skills of the leaders of the future. 
Um, failing fast in some organizations today means innovate, try it out, pilot it in a small, fairly contained way, and figure out if it works before we spend a whole lot of money. That's sort of the the sense of what fail fast means. The the conflict is that the leadership that we've all been taught, right, the 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 large body of work that most of us have studied over our careers is about rigorous analysis and flawless planning. And failure is not calculated in there, right? Failure is not an option. And so we have to have C-suite leaders that have an appetite for this idea of piloting and failing and extracting what we've learned as a positive thing, not as the way that we have coined the term failure. Um, You know, what I'm thinking about this entire time is, you know, rigidity, you know, and uh, it sounds so, you know, current, as you describe current leadership uh, trends, it's, it's so rigid, but everything's changing so quickly. And we all know that if something that's rigid is faced with change, it breaks, you know, so flexibility Absolutely, yeah. seems to be critical here. I, and I, you know, I can't help but wonder, I mean, people pride themselves on being stubborn, you know, talk to any family member oh, I'm so stubborn, you know, and everyone laughs. But uh, that's not a, that doesn't seem like a quality that can last in, uh, in what's, coming, what's coming over the next 10 years. Yeah, no, actually, that's a really good point. Um, if you think about the C-suite in itself, if you think about the people who are really the, key, the holders of the keys to strategy and vision, um, that is probably where we'll see the largest shift in skill set. And you're starting to see it today. You're starting to see this sort of grand divide between sort of legacy run Fortune 50 or Fortune 500 companies that have a traditional way of thinking that feels top down, right? It feels cascaded throughout the organization, even with really dynamic and enthusiastic visionary leaders, it's still sort of cascaded in a top-down way. This is where we're going, get on the bus. Let's make sure we have the right people on the bus. And then you see some of these um, lifestyle companies that, you know, the Googles, the Ubers, um, there's, there's so many of these disruptors, the Airbnbs of the world, who are really more focused at this point on on the value that they're providing and and providing something that's really agile and can shift. And so everything that we've learned about long-term planning sort of goes out the window at that point. And what does that require? If, if you're a director, um, if you are a VP, if you're in the C-suite, for sure, if you're a CHRO, the task is how to get our organizational development to match the strategy. That's always the task is how do we, okay, the strategies come out, the visions come out. Now, how do we get the organization to build enough capacity to execute the strategy? Well, the problem is, is that the strategy is come when it comes from a top down place, it may be missing Intel, Intel, valuable Intel from, from the ground right, from mm-hmm. the ground floor, from, from the touch points that have the most intel about customers, from the touch points that have the most intel about why the product does or doesn't work, those people are almost never at the table in strategic planning. 
And so some of that valuable intel is lost. And what you're finding in some of these younger startup mentality organizations that wear t-shirts to work and, you know, ride bikes instead of driving cars and and have um, innovation rooms where they can take naps, (laughs) what they're doing is they're specializing in the I don't know of leadership. They've actually flipped leadership on its head and they've said, I don't know, the customer does. So I'm going to find all the ways to ask them. And that that's humble. Yeah, it's not humble indeed. And also pretty risky, I imagine. Um, you know, if you, you know, a good example might be, be Google. Um, eventually they developed Alphabet to sort of house all their, all their development. But before that, they were just innovating new things all the time and taking huge risks, you know, spending all this money making Google glasses or, you know, I can't even think mm-hmm. of all the features that we've lost from Google since they first first really became popular. And that's kind of the point, right, is that they tried it rapidly. It didn't work. They axed it and moved on. And it hasn't seemed to have harmed them in the least, right? Right. And and. I always remind leaders who want to use Google as the example is you don't have to be Google. I think Google is an innovation company. That's actually their product is innovation, right? right? And so the rest of us don't have to be innovation providers, right? We can be innovative in whatever we specialize in. So there's a spectrum and I think Google's really far to one end of, of the sort of um, fail fast methodology because that's that's sort of their their IP in the world. But I do think that for, you know, anyone who's in healthcare, education, you know, some of these traditional industries, um, products, manufacturing, um, transportation, all of my clients who are in all of those areas are still pushing up against the old way of thinking and 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 also looking at Google and saying, well, I can never be a Google, so why try? And I and I think there's just this massive spectrum, and it's going to require some transitional leaders. It's going to require some people who know um, how to speak millennial and how to work within hierarchical structures at the same time. Now, you mentioned the um, 800 million jobs lost to automation, and you know, there's there's several other points that will happen. One of them in the next 10 years is that millennials will assume control of our workplaces. Millennials are to the age now where they have, they're educated, they will have work experience, and their values about collaboration and about shared power and about leadership will be the majority in workplaces a decade from now. And so when I sort of straddle. I'm not. I'm not in the generation that is retiring in the next ten years, and I'm also. I have children that are millennials, right? Mm. And so I'm in the middle, and I consider myself one of those leaders who has to be who has to speak both languages. It's really old world, new world. Yeah, um, I'm. I'm an elder. They call us elder millennials. You know, at the very oldest, I think I can be and still be considered a millennial. And uh, I can't even begin to tell you how many article pitches and discussions about 
what millennials want, what millennials need, um, you know, and uh, to the point where I, I'm kind of sick of it, um, especially especially the ones where they, uh, you know, they say, well, millennials don't need to get paid a lot. They just need good experience. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I digress, though. Um, well, there's the, a lot the, of stereotypes built into that, right? Yeah. I mean, how are but you going to tackle it without that, though? Well, so I think what we're you know, I've been to the conferences too, where there's always someone speaking in a room next to me about how to handle millennials in the workplace. And what I think we're responding to is this sort of radical shift that we don't know how to manage. It's not about millennials necessarily. It's about the fact that technology is changing how we do business. And and in order for us to get the work done at the pace that technology is setting for us, we're going to have to be more collaborative. Uh, we're going to have to have more shared power. We're going to have to be a lot more competent with complexity, right? And these are not the things that that leaders have specialized in for all of time. All of time, what, what our job has been and what my job has been, has been to take something very complex and turn it into a very ordered, linear set of decisions and then sort of check off those decisions. And you can take any one of the world's problems today, you know, name name your your least favorite news headline. Yeah, and ocean temperatures are rising. Oh, were you asking me? <laughs> yeah, well, th- yeah, all of those things exactly. So, ocean That's temperatures are rising. What about what about migration? Mm. Um, we have global migration. What you know, and and so what we're seeing is we're taking these incredibly complex problems like ocean temperatures rising and and human migration around the world. And we're trying to make them simple and linear. And it just doesn't work because they're too complex. Right. So, yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. So there's no, there's no, uh, there's no binary answer to solving ocean temperatures rising. There's no, if we do this, it will all change. There's (laughs) many of those, if not thousands of those decisions that need to be taken in concert with each other because they happened in concert with each other to create this complexity. Um, So I would say, you know, in the future where we, where leader was about knowing the answer and where the leaders that I coach, the executives that I coach, I will tell you that the, the top thing that we spend our time on is I'm not allowed not to know they're paying me the most in the organization I'm supposed to know. Mm. Right. And we're moving away from that to being facilitators, to people who come in saying, I don't know, but I know how to get the right people in the room to find out. Yeah. And that's something that I think that, you know, my generation, um, just based on the people that I know and that I've, you know, my colleagues excels at, you know, I remember being in school and we didn't really have the rote memorization, at least in my school system, um, it was all about learning how to how to access the information that you need. So maybe I don't remember, you know, I don't know all those GRE words or those uh, SAT words, but I know how to find them if I need to, and that's much more powerful because I only have to, I really only have to focus on something that's a small group of knowledge that I can branch out into an extreme wealth of knowledge. Absolutely. 
Yeah. No, I mean, I was I was just thinking back to that example that I gave earlier of the phone in our pocket and all the things we would do with it. Right. Yeah. And so you grew up, my kids grew up in an era where they had information at their fingertips, where from the back seat they could say, Why do llamas spit? And you know, 20 years ago, I would say, I don't know. <laughs> we yeah. have to go home and look in the encyclopedia to find that out. And But before they, they finish the sentence, they can access the information in their hand. And so we've taught the last two generations how to find information, not how to be knowers. And I think it's a really important distinction to say that that's a transitional leadership skill. Um, is is find it, facilitate the answers, don't know the answer. It's a, I imagine that there is some resistance from uh, your clients and people you work with to these kinds of concepts. For sure. Um, I think, I think it's a, it's a huge honor and a burden to be a leader in today's world because we are all simultaneously striving to, to climb the, the career ladder for ourselves and disgusted by how abuse of power has manifested in everything that we love, whether it's our faith traditions, our corporations, our, you know, our, our investment bankers, our whatever, whatever we are, are um, putting our faith into, we've, we've all had an experience of letdown. And so there's this tremendous burden of being a leader. And yet we're still operating under this old framework, this framework that a leader must know all the answers because you get paid the most money. You must make things linear and black and white. There's, there's a lot of absolute thinking that is, that is culturally required, sort of required of us as leaders, or we think it is. We're supposed to have expertise. Um, and I would say that we're going to flip that in the next 10 years. You will watch it change, and some of it will be motivated by younger people taking the helm. Some of it will be motivated by the fact that technology is progressing so quickly that none of our strategies will work. And and when I speak about this, people nod their heads profusely in, in the audience. They say, well, they're not working now, right? I can't tell you how many times we've planned year one of a five-year strategy 15 times for the last 15 years. So leader will become facilitator. Linear thinkers will, will, um, will thrive in complexity and knowing when they need a bottom-up solution versus a top-down versus, um, you know, a real uh, connected, engaged solution. They're very, they're very different prescriptions where people are expected to have expertise. We will now reward leaders for providing access, for getting the right people to the table so that the right brains are solving the problems. Let's talk about some of the uh, the big fish. I mean, I suppose if you look into American history, you know, there's the Rockefellers and and the the you know the philanthropists we all learned about. You know, and these were people that were setting setting the policies. They were creating the literal infrastructure of the country, and um, they were immensely powerful and, and wealthy you know and, and of course there have always been people like that but you know now we have situations where there's real problems out there that aren't being addressed like the environment for example you know um, global warming 
there's just so many facets to it that the legislation is slow and or in some cases non-existent and it and this stuff needs to happen like right now you know and so we have elon musk and we have you know um jeff bezos and people out there that are kind of ironically the only people with the ability to actually make you know and bill and melinda gates and their foundation to make huge changes to to the world in a way that really this artifact this rigid artifact of old world thinking that is our our political system isn't doing that Mm -hmm. you know and i i look at that as like uh i mean some countries out there are are tackling it but you know we we aren't and it's i can't think of anything more important than making sure that we all have a planet here in 25 years you know what does it mean when what does it mean i guess for for the workplace that you have these people that are literally creating policies with their immense wealth and with their immense reach. Yeah. No, I think, I think that's really the question we're all asking ourselves, right? This is why for me, there was a thread between leadership and social change because the, the hierarchical institutions that we know and, and we don't know anything different are all we have to work with and they're not and they're failing us for some of these uh, quick turns right and and no matter yeah. what side of the political aisle you're on you can't argue with the fact that by two, by 2030 there will be more trash in the sea than fish mm. right so take climate completely out of the conversation we have a trash problem we have a plastic problem. We have a we have a recycling problem. We have a waste problem. We have we have two thirds of the population moving to cities by 2050, right? So we're going to compound that problem by crowding um, and needing lots of infrastructure. And I think what people like Elon Musk are are doing is basically not waiting for some of those institutions to solve the problems. They're radically disruptive to the status quo, and um, when you ask, you know, how do the leaders that I work with feel about that? I would say that it's typically HR who who hires me. It's typically HR who sort of grabs me by the hand and brings me into their organization and says, because they can see the whole story, right? They've, right. they've got their finger on the pulse of all the pain in the organization. And they can see that something needs to be, the status quo needs to be challenged or disrupted, but they don't always have the power or authority or the seat at the strategic table to do so. And so when I get an audience with the C-suite, what we spend our time working on is the comfort to to let go of the death grip on the status quo, right? To challenge the things that we take for granted as not negotiable. So one of the one of the facts that I talk about when I talk about this study, there was a Frost and Sullivan research study done about the future of the United States in 2025 and um, how things will change socially and technologically. And one of the things that I talk about there is e-governance will be real, right? We'll, we'll have models that allow us to, um, to, ch- to change the shape of government within 10 10- years, 10 to 15 years, right? So that's, that's as long as I've had an iPhone in my hand, which doesn't feel very long to me. Um, 
the the problem with that pace of change is that we've got a lot of people working really hard to hold on to the status quo and some yeah. of those people have a lot of money yeah and are very invested in keeping the status quo there right and so i think that in the spirit of agile and the spirit of um, piloting in small groups and and seeing what we learn i think that our innovators will be radically disruptive to the status quo on small scale pilots on small scale trials they won't need to reorganize the entire government they'll start with their city they'll start with their community they'll start with their their institution right and and as you know here in the US especially but in the west for sure we we really put our leaders on a pedestal we really worship our entrepreneurs and the people who quote unquote make it so those radically disruptive leaders will be the people who we base the new status quo on. Um, and so I, what I would say to a change agent, whether you're just in your organization um, or in your community, is, is focus on what you have influence over and be radically disruptive there, right? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a great answer. Um... Um, <laughs> you know, we were talking about, you know, these disruptors and, you know, a great example people always want to talk about is Uber, you know, and Lyft. Like, I don't need a car, um, mm-hmm. especially in larger, you know, like cities and larger towns. It can be a little bit costly if you're out in the sticks. But, you know, I just take an Uber, just take a Lyft. How long before a company like Uber will do our jobs for us, and and where do we where do I sign up? <laughs> yeah. Um, so so many people have made movies about what we're going to look like when that happens, and I'm on the edge of my seat with you. Um, I I do know that when you there's a connection between the Ubers and the Lyfts of the world and the gig economy that will be the norm, right? So. In the two cities that I spend most of my time in, San Francisco and Austin, Texas, you can't find a seat in a coffee shop during the day. So (laughs) either we're all working remotely or we've all figured out how to put together little bits of our income so that we can live the life we want to live. And a lot of people would argue that there's a lot of people in both of those cities not living the life they want to live. And that's absolutely true. But I think that going back to this theme of transition again, that we are transitioning to a world that is largely run on gig economy. And for people who don't know what that means, it's really, you know, sort of killing the nine to five and and being able to put together what our income in various different gigs or various different ways. And so I imagine uh, 10 years from now, there being a global marketplace where people can put their skills out for for use and that automation will help connect us to the people who need our skill sets the most. And so this idea of leaders dying in their chair, which I do a lot of coaching of leaders who are dying in their chair because it's using a part of them to be in this job, but but parts of them are dying, right? Parts of them are atrophying because their their job isn't isn't speaking to their whole self, isn't using their whole self. That will over the next 10 to 15 years, that will change. And we will all be able to sort of stay in our sweet spot and and get paid for it. 
And now speaking of disrupting, think of all the things that will disrupt. Well, where do I get my, my health benefits from then? Where do I, do I need to rent an office? Can I do that from my apartment? Can I live in a van as long as I have Wi-Fi and do my job? I think all of those questions are relevant questions. And I think there's a lot of people in the worlds that I, that I work in who can't imagine that that will ever happen, but they're laughing in the same way that I laughed when, when my CEO came to me and said, we will replace landlines and you will walk around the earth with your phone in your pocket. And we laughed. Yeah. I, uh, Two things. One, I heard somebody recently at, at a conference say that cell phones won't be important in 10 years, um, which, of course, sounds ridiculous. But, you know, it happened when cell phones came around. It can easily continue, you know, in some sort of unimaginable direction. And um, the other thing is I can't even tell you how many people I know that, you know, and, and uh, perhaps myself included a little bit, work because of the benefits. I mean, specifically for health benefits. Um, a lot of my friends, a lot of my, my colleagues, they, they already have gigs in addition. Right now it's extra work mm-hmm. that they're doing. Mm-hmm. And the thing that they're holding onto their jobs for is so that they have health insurance. So if you solve that one problem in this country, let's say against all odds, a single payer, you know, a health insurance system comes into play. Suddenly, you know, as an individual, I can afford health insurance, and and so can all my friends. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you, that would really, I mean, that would be a huge change because people wouldn't need to go to work anymore. What a terrible reason to go to work! <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean, yeah. for those of us in in the HR world, that's not engagement, right? We we want we we're doing the best with what we've got, but if if even 40% of our population is showing up because they're afraid someday they'll get a disease and they need to have your health insurance. That's a terrible reason to go to work every day. And and I bet we're not getting the best of that employee that day, right? We're getting yeah. what we're getting what um, we're paying for. Um, you know, when you talk about healthcare, the study that I quote says that over 60% of Americans will be overweight and 40% will be obese in 2025. That uh, healthcare will have to reinvent itself to center on prevention and not disease management. And that providers will be replaced by healthcare technology. So where some where many of us now are seeing our doctors do telemedicine and and being able to text with our nurse practitioner if our if our kids running a fever that uh, will speed up and our access to our own lab reports and real-time biometrics. You know, there's people innovating right now with one drop of your blood with a, an adapter into your smartphone that can give you your real-time biometrics right now. No lab, no doctor, no one to interpret it. You can really get instant control over your health. So if healthcare wasn't so hard to get and so expensive, would we all need the jobs that we have today? Would we do something else? Um, I think, you know, one of, one of my... One of my mentors in the world um, is an alternative economics guru, and she has a podcast also called Upstream. And one of her quotes is she always talks about turning your side hustle into your into your day-to-day hustle. 
like how can we how can we harness that energy of what you're so passionate about and make that your day to day just break the model break the commute the the benefits the you know the needing your your employer to sponsor your 401k in order to force retirement getting to retirement and realizing it's not enough money all of these frameworks are are not so they're not substantial enough and uh and they're not working 100% of the time and that's a scary scary reality for especially HR people but for leadership today it's a scary reality i basically just talked you out of going and having a job yeah i think i have to go do that right now so <laughs> no <laughs> no it sounds it sounds very compelling and you know that's exactly that's exactly what I'm talking about, you know. Uh, and and people are they're developing their own skills, you know. I always hear this nonsense from the older generations about how millennials can't, you know, whatever can't grip a grip a motorcycle handle, you know, or they uh, <laughs> they don't have the, you know. But every single person that I know from my age group has something that they go home and they specialize in that most people don't. You know, and that that curiosity and that creativity, like it, you, it's just not going to go anywhere. It's not going to be stopped. If you free up people to go do those things, they will absolutely do them. Right, right. So if you talked about um, history, right, and some of the some of the core sort of shapers of American history, especially when it comes to American business, and back think about all the different revolutions that we've been through, right? We went through the mechanization revolution where water power and steam power were revolutionizing what we could do. And, and sure there was job loss in that, but there was also innovation gained, right? Then we went through mass production and assembly line uh, revolution. And, and then the, the, around the generation that you were born in, we were really in the computer and automation revolution. We're today in um, sort of cyber informational uh, information technology revolution where information is as fast as a thought. So the likelihood of you becoming a, an expert in something that you have endless access to information on is very high. Right. Mm. And this is why this is why institutions like education are trying to reinvent themselves. This is why so many students are now um, online students and why there's free education in all of the political conversations and why there's educators out there that are are offering their information for free. So I think the important thing to realize as we as we look at history is that we're still using the best practices from mechanization and from assembly line. Like some of us are still struggling to figure out how to make our workplaces more lean or how to make them more efficient or how to make them um, more utilized. And these are best practices from three revolutions ago. <laughs> Seems a little outdated, doesn't it? It is. Yeah, it is. Well, um, I think we're going to have to, this has been fascinating. I think we're going to have to uh, end it, end it here. Um, but thank you so much, Lisa, for taking the time to join us today. You're welcome. Can I leave you with sort of one last thought about, of course. 
I would love to say to leaders who say that was dark and scary and (laughs) it didn't leave me with anything actionable except everything in life is going to change. So what I would say is that the leader of the future does three things. Um, We need to reinvent the way that we lead. We need to reinvent the things that we focus on, meaning um, metrics and measurements. And we need to reinvent the way that we actually get work done together. Those three things are big, huge buckets of work that our HR teams, our OD teams, our leadership uh, teams, our frontline managers could all be boosting their skill in right now. So increase the leadership skill for the future. Redefine what leader means. Challenge the status quo. Um, Focus on different things than the traditional metrics that we focus on today and reinvent the way that we do work together, the way we harvest information and collaborate together. And if you do those three things, you stay right with the pace of change. That's excellent advice. I hope that everyone that is listening takes it to heart. Um, yeah, thanks Thanks so much for, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Same here. Listeners, we're always interested in suggestions from you that you might have for what HR Works should cover next. Uh, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at HR Works Podcast, or if you just have any thoughts or concerns or you just want to say hi, uh, thanks so much for listening. This is Jim Davis with HR Works.